Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we'd like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? A few fascinating facts, Jim. Nine of the world's 20 largest firms in technology are Chinese-owned. You know, 25 years ago, China's output was less than 2% of the world's economy. Today, it's 15% and rising. 15%. And China now awards more science and engineering degrees than the U.S. Today, China, the challenge and the threat. Elizabeth Economy. They've put QR codes on the outside of people's homes so that an official can walk by and press the QR code and know exactly who's supposed to be in there. And everywhere you go, any public place is completely monitored. This, this sounds like 1984. Or... It is exactly like 1984 and, and then some because the technology is more advanced than we could have imagined. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? A trade war with China is today's biggest threat to the economy. President Trump is facing a lot of pressure to ease tensions and make some kind of deal. We saw that again at the recent G7 summit, and there's certainly been some strong messages sent by financial markets. But Richard, the issues surrounding China have to do with a lot more than just tariffs and trade. A military crackdown on Hong Kong would have huge implications. Another problem we're looking at in the U.S. is economic and cyber espionage by China. There's also a major story about that just came out in The Atlantic that is really chilling how extensive their efforts are to spy on the U.S. And we'll have a link to that on our website. This week, we revisit an episode that first aired at the end of last year, a conversation about the background of the current crisis. Elizabeth Economy is a senior fellow and director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She writes frequently about China, and her most recent book is The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. Until recently, there was a view that normalizing trade relations would lead to a more open and democratic China. That hasn't happened, has it? Thanks for welcoming us to your office. My pleasure. 
So let's start first with what we got wrong about China. Most experts thought that when China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, that it would become more open and democratic. That's not the case, is it? Well, it certainly doesn't look that way right now under Chinese President Xi Jinping. But I think if you look back to the period just before Xi Jinping came into power in 2011 and 2012, you would tell a different story. You would see a China that fundamentally had become far more open. Uh, There was a very vibrant internet that in some respects was uh, more active than the real political system. You had people protesting via the internet. You had uh, environmental issues being raised on a daily basis that forced the government to take action. Uh, You had people calling for justice for people who'd been illegally arrested. You had protests being arranged via the internet across provinces. Uh, There was an enormous amount of political activity and openness uh, on the internet um, and also in the real media. So I think the situation then looks very different from the situation now. I'm not sure we got it all wrong, but what we did get wrong was that we didn't expect Xi Jinping. And your book is called The Third Revolution. Can you give us a little 30-second history lesson on revolutions one and two? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, what best encapsulates um, sort of the entrance of Xi Jinping is if you look back to his speech over a year ago when he was reselected as general secretary of the Communist Party. And in the speech, he said, China has stood up, grown rich, become strong, and is moving towards center stage. And the first revolution is China standing up. And that's Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists standing up against the ruling Kuomintang party at the time, also standing up against the Japanese invaders and creating the contemporary Chinese Communist Party state in 1949. The second revolution is, of course, China growing rich. That's the period of Deng Xiaoping ushered in 1979, leading to decades of reform and opening up where, you know, Deng Xiaoping uh, introduced the market into the Chinese economy. He opened up civil society. China had its first non-governmental organizations. He welcomed influence from abroad, both in terms of foreign capital, but also foreign ideas. He also believed in maintaining a low-profile foreign policy uh, so that China could focus on issues at home, not be distracted by events uh, abroad. Uh, And he moved, very importantly, he moved China away from sort of single-man authoritarian leadership of Mao Zedong to a more collective and uh, consensus-based decision-making process. And so now we're in this new era, and things have really changed from the era of Deng Xiaoping. Exactly. So Xi Jinping is the third revolution. That, uh, in Xi's words, is China becoming strong and moving towards center stage, right? Playing a much more active role on the global stage, because that really is at the heart of his Chinese dream, his rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. It's all about reclaiming a degree of centrality for China on the global stage. And in the process, he's really upended much of what Deng Xiaoping had done uh, in his second revolution. Uh, He's moved back toward a more single-man authoritarian form of rule, away from collective and consensus-based decision-making. He's certainly adopted a far more proactive foreign policy. There's nothing low-profile about the way that Xi Jinping uh, conducts his uh, foreign policy. Uh, And, you know, he's closed China down in many respects that I think we've all found very surprising Uh, You know, he's put up barriers to foreign non-governmental organizations. He's tried to limit foreign capital coming in through his Made in China 2025 program. There's a whole range of ways in which he has reversed 
the sort of 30 years of Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up. So your conclusion, which I found really striking, was you write, for the first time, China is an illiberal state seeking leadership in a liberal world order. Right. So what I see or what I've seen over the past six, almost seven years now since Xi Jinping uh, came into power is this transformation of China both at home and abroad. And the transformation at home is a far more uh, repressive and authoritarian China, right? But it, at the, abroad, it's a far more ambitious China, right? It's a China that is now seeking to change the way things are done uh, in the global arena. That means, you know, changing the rules of the game when it comes to uh, human rights issues or in terms of internet sovereignty, right? China has a very different understanding of how uh, the internet should operate internationally. Much you want, They want a China net, close off the internet, right? Uh, so that China can control everything that comes in and goes out uh, of the country. They're um, much more expansive in terms of sharing their political model. I think one of the astonishing things about this leadership is that they actively have said for the first time that I can remember that China has something to share with its political model for still developing countries. And I think that's very significant. So in other words, democracy isn't the thing anymore. And that it's confident enough to say, we have a different system than the Western system of democracy and free expression. Exactly. And that we can export that that's as right. well. That's right. I would say it's not about exporting communism. They're not trying to export communist parties uh, abroad, but it is about exporting elements of their political model. So you can see China now in Tanzania, training officials there on how to manage the internet, how to control the media, how to suppress public dissent. You can see that in Kenya, a Chinese company was responsible for digitizing a number of Kenyan villages, and they then controlled the media content that came through that. So they priced out the BBC, priced out Al Jazeera, and they left in the Chinese media content. So trying to shape the narrative within Kenya around a more Chinese narrative. I mean, even in our own backyard, Peru has adopted the Huawei Chinese telecom company, the Huawei surveillance system that Beijing has put in place in its own country. And internally, too, they're using some of the new developments in technology to get a tighter grip where the internet was a great force for openness and liberalization all over the world for many, many years. Now it's going the other way. Tell us about how new technology, including biometrics, is enabling this new style of more repressive Chinese government. Right. This government, more than probably any in the world, has managed this incredible fusion of technology and political repression or authoritarianism. China has now probably close to 200 million cameras throughout the country that are capable of facial recognition. They want to get it to 600 million by 2020. They're also working on voice recognition because they want to be able to listen in on any phone call and identify exactly which two people are speaking. And gate recognition. So in some places, like in the far western autonomous region of Xinjiang, they just stop buses as they're going down the street make the people get off the bus, and then actually tape how people walk so that they can feed that into the system as well and have gait recognition. Yeah, what's gait recognition? <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. It's how do you walk? So if you change the way you, what is your, your what face looks... your gait? Not, you, not G-A-T-E. No, G-A-I-T, yeah, gait, yeah. gait recognition. Um, taking that to an extreme, you look in Xinjiang, and, and that's where they've put 
as many as a million Uyghurs, the Muslim ethnic, now I think minority, slightly under half the population in Xinjiang is Muslim Uyghur, in re-education camps. And they've used a lot of technology in this process. So they've put QR codes on the outside of people's homes so that an official can walk by and press the QR code and know exactly who's supposed to be in there. And if someone who's not supposed to be there is there, they can question, you know, why is that taking place? Um, They have cameras on every street corner there. You walk into a shopping mall, into a train station, everywhere you go, any public place is completely monitored. This, this sounds like 1984. Or- it is exactly like 1984 and, and then some, right? Because the technology is more advanced than we could have imagined. Now, we've been asking questions from a Western perspective, but what are Confucian values as expressed by Xi Jinping? Well, I mean, I think Confucian values the, as expressed by Xi Jinping. I mean, there is a, a respect for authority, a respect for order. But, you know, Confucian values also include an element of the right for moral dissent. And humility. <laughs> that, is not, that is not necessarily yeah. part of Xi Jinping's Confucian value system. I think Xi Jinping likes to use selectively things from Confucianism to support, you know, his position. You say that Xi Jinping is playing the long game. You know, in the, in the United States and in sort of Western market democracies, you know, we value efficiency and competition. Xi Jinping sees it differently. He's all about control and trying to ensure an, a certain outcome. And so he's willing to sacrifice efficiency and competition uh, in the name of, you know, getting something 10 or 20 years out. So, for example, uh, you can look at something like the electric car market in China uh, and see that, uh, you know, for really close to a decade now, China has, uh, from the top down, right, in a very centralized, directed way, pushed forward with the development of electric cars. You know, even when there was complete failure in the system, right, that produced crappy cars, nobody wanted to buy them, nobody was driving them, it didn't matter. They kept pushing forward. So what do you end up with? There's so much fraud, there's so much waste. You know, they had produced a ton of electric buses and cars, they had no seats, they had no motors, all to meet the quotas that were out there. But fast forward now, you know, we're in 2018, 2019, and you have China has the largest electric car market in the world. It's the largest manufacturer of electric cars, but it doesn't have a Tesla, right? So it doesn't have the top quality car, right? It has masses and masses, you know, but it doesn't have top quality. What are some of the weak points? One is debt, yes? So I think if we're looking at the Chinese economy, um, I think just looking over the past six months or so, we see that it's begun to slow. It's begun to stutter a little bit. A number of different factors have come into play. One of them, as you suggest, is rising levels of debt, Um, not just local government debt, but very high corporate debt, uh, and in fact, rising household debt. And this is one of the things that people don't appreciate because we all think of the Chinese as the big savers, right? Mm -hmm. Which they are, especially compared to Americans. But nonetheless, we've watched over the past few years very rapidly rising levels of household debt, particularly uh, to buy homes in China because prices have really skyrocketed. So they've they've got an issue with their debt. They've got an issue with their private enterprise. Uh, They have an issue now with the housing market and a housing bubble. Commercial real estate is falling flat. Uh, Export growth is down. Basically, the Chinese economy is not in a free fall, 
Um, but the, the level of, of central control, when you combine that with the pressure from the trade war, is now causing the Chinese leadership to rethink uh, its path forward. And so we're starting to see some moves, uh, maybe, to liberalize the economy. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations. So let's talk about solutions. And given the size of China, the problems, the topic, that could be a long conversation, but there's things that could happen inside China. But what should our policy be? And you wrote something I thought was really striking. The United States must mount a vigorous defense at home because it can no longer count on China to continue the process of reform and opening up. It should stop sacrificing its own economic and political security. Wow. So it sounds almost... Trumpian. Right. Little did I know <laughs> that I would, I would find myself in concert with the, the Trump administration. Look, China has simply gotten too big, right? For a long time, we believed that by modeling best behavior, by having an open economy, a largely open economy, best intellectual property rights protection practices, that China would follow suit. And so for years and years, we basically excused uh, Chinese market barriers to entry. We excuse Chinese intellectual property theft, their subsidies to state-owned enterprises on the grounds that they were still a developing country and that they were going to do better. And indeed, the Chinese leaders promised all the time they were going to do better. And then they just really didn't. And now we're looking at the second largest economy on track to surpass us perhaps, you know, in the next five to 10 years and become the largest economy in the world. It's simply not okay China is no longer really a developing country in that same context. So, so, so was Trump right to call out China? Absolutely. So, I, and I think I think this administration is right to call out China on every front and to pull back the lid and say, here are all the bad practices that we see from cyber espionage to failure to protect intellectual property, whatever it is that they're doing, and say, we're calling them out and we're going to address them. So sometimes the administration's policy looks chaotic, and indeed, I think it is. But by and large, I support this effort to bring sunlight and use it as the best disinfectant. How's it going? Overall, I'd probably give it a B plus. A B plus because I think the Chinese are beginning to move. And I think if you look around the world, um, whether it's on Chinese practices in the Belt and Road Initiative, it's, you know, grand scale plan for infrastructure development throughout the world, which was not conducting along best practices and putting a lot of countries into really significant debt. The United States said this is really bad. Can I just interrupt? Sure. What are best practices in your view? I mean, in what ways is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a huge investment program by China, what are they not doing that you'd call best practices? So best, best practices includes things like transparency in the bidding process. Right. So making sure that you're not giving the leader of a country some kickback in order to give one of your companies the deal, even though your company is not the best suited for the project. It includes doing environmental and social impact assessments before you undertake these really large infrastructure projects. It includes ensuring that really small countries don't take on too much debt so that you have to turn around like China did in Sri Lanka and say, oh, you can't repay the interest on your debt. We'll take your port for a 99-year lease. Thank you very much. There's also concern that you raise about China's militarism and expansionism, especially in the South China Sea. And you recommend some, some responses that the Chinese might see as, 
almost belligerent. Well, I think it's hard for the United States to be belligerent in the South China Sea, given that China created and militarized seven artificial features. I think at this point, all the United States is doing, and rightly so, is protecting freedom of navigation. Yeah, tell us a little bit about those islands. This has been going on for years, but I don't think most people are following it. What have they been doing on those coral atolls and and sort of, you know, shoals and little tiny islands out there in the South China Sea, way outside of their their own territorial waters. Right. So there are a couple of different sets of islands, the Spratleys and the Paracels. They're claimed by a number of different countries uh, in the region, including uh, mainland China, including Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, Brunei has a claim, Malaysia has a claim in one. So they all have claims over different parts of these island uh, chains. And China has always maintained that it has sovereignty over close to 90% of the South China Sea, which basically include all of this. <laughs> but Deng Xiaoping said, I'm not going to do anything about this. We're just going to push this off until wiser minds can address it. Right? Xi Jinping apparently believes he is that wiser mind. And so he has tried to move from staking claims around Chinese sovereignty to realizing them. And so he has taken seven of the small artificial features, which are not islands at all, but built them into islands that can support runways and missile launchers. So the PLA Navy and Air Force have launching pads, essentially. And so the the question now is, where does he go from here? And you want us to push back, not necessarily in a military way, but to establish our freedom of navigation for all nations in those waters. Right. So exactly. And and we're doing that in partnership with Australia, with um, Japan. Actually, the French and the British have sailed ships through there. So this is not really about the United States and China in many respects. This is about the principle of freedom of navigation. So it's not really about the United States. It's about the global system. Uh, because the danger becomes then that China declares what, what are called baselines around these islands, right, connecting them, and says in order to transit through here, you need to request permission, in addition to the ability to project power. You talk about the U.S. response in partnership with other countries, and yet under President Trump, the United States has withdrawn from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, So are we going it alone too much? So this is really one of the fascinating things about the Trump administration is that, yes, President Trump certainly seems to believe that multilateral institutions and international arrangements and agreements are bad (laughs) and they constrain the United States, right? It's not just about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's about the Paris Climate Accords. It's about the International Postal Union. It's about a whole range uh, of international uh, arrangements. Fortunately, Uh, The people that work for the president don't feel this way. (laughs) And so uh, a number of his cabinet secretaries, like Secretary Mattis, uh, Secretary Pompeo, and his predecessor, Secretary Tillerson of the State Department, are internationalists. So I can tell you that when I was in Vietnam about a year and a half ago, a Vietnamese official said that they had the best relationship with the United States they've ever had because of Secretary Mattis. Uh, so I think it's important to look below the level of the president to try to, you know, shut your ears to some of his his rhetoric and to look at what the United States is actually doing on the ground. The headlines right now, though, are dominated by the real threat of a all-out trade war. 
How much of a threat is that? Well, I think we had a very positive sign at the G20 when they met uh, a few weeks ago, um, where they basically put a pause, where President Trump said, okay, let's take 90 days, let's sit down, let's see what we can negotiate out. If it doesn't work, we're, we're getting back on the, on the tariff train. Uh, because I am what tariff man, but but uh, but I think uh, but I think the idea is that they're really going to try to work hard to negotiate and move things forward. And I think we're seeing signs that the Chinese are already moving to address some of the important structural reform issues that the United States has been complaining about. Final question: Do you think that China can be both a rival and a partner at the same time? A- absolutely. I think, um, in fact, I think it's incumbent upon both President Xi Jinping and President Trump to find a way to to do that. I mean, one of the strengths of the U.S.-China relationship over the past several decades has been that we've always had friction. We've always had serious issues. In many respects, we've had many more frictions than we've had areas of common ground or common purpose. But you've always had two leaders who've recognized that managing this relationship is essential, that you cannot allow it to spiral down too far. And I think the challenge with these two leaders is that they've come late to the game of understanding how important this relationship is. Maybe we're going to turn the corner there. Elizabeth Economy here at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thanks. Richard? I think I'm starting to change my mind. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, not something that, that's not something that happens every day. But I, as you know, a traditional free trader, free market advocate. I think this is best for the country, for the world. But I'm starting to come around to some of the Trump administration arguments about why it's important to hold China's feet to the fire. I'm not a fan of trade wars, but what Elizabeth Economy was saying about shining light on a lot of very kind of brutal and unfair practices that they've really gotten a free ride on for years. I do think that's important. And I was encouraged to hear her semi-optimistic take on this administration's policies. I agree with you with one caveat. This administration does not mention the phrase human rights nearly as often as it should. You're absolutely right. And they should. And it's, and it's a problem all over the world. And a problem of both parties, frankly. And I think that that the country could be using our leverage better. And another area where we could use our leverage better, and and this went unmentioned in our interview, is is the environment, where under the Obama administration, there was a good deal of cooperation with China leading up to the Paris Climate Accord. That's all now been cast aside. I'm going to call bullshit on that one, Richard. Our CO2 emissions are going down. We didn't sign the, the Paris Accord. Everybody thinks that we're horrible. We're the worst thing for the climate. China, despite supposedly building all these electric cars and... and but, know, but we're not holding plants. their feet to the fire. No, oh. I mean, you're right about what you said. We're, we, our emissions are going down, but we could do so much better. True. Yes. And I'm a, I'm a believer in international agreements. But the countries that, that in that case, that have talk the most about their big investments in alternative energy are doing the worst. But getting back to what we should do now, I really feel like there is a sensible path that that Elizabeth Economy kind of lays out here. It's reassuring to hear that somebody who spent her whole career in this field is not 
as alarmed as all of us are by some of the rhetoric coming from Trump and his basic orientation. But so far, the administration seems to be using some of his intensity and anger and putting it to perhaps some uses that might be positive in the end. Fingers crossed. I'm going to end, which I always love to do on that positive note. It's how do we fix it? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And I changed my mind. (laughs) It's great. It's great. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio, which means podcasts, for clients, including companies and nonprofits. If you like what you hear on this podcast and you want to improve yours, then get in touch at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening.